0: A number of years ago, I was in a conference at Mount Hermon Conference Center where I was on staff before pastoring. A well-known theologian got up to speak after a time of worship like this and he made the statement, if I had my druthers, I'd rather sing the gospel than preach it. (laughs) And I often feel that way myself when we've enjoyed the the gifting of those God has gifted to lead us in worship. Thank you, Father, for the gift of, of worship. We've already had many messages from you to our hearts in the songs that we have sung. And I pray that the message from Scripture will also add to what you want to speak into our lives, to my life, to our lives, to the life of this church. And I ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. You'll notice in the bulletin that part of the blurb on me is that I've been married for 43 years to Diana. Matter of fact, I met Diana the same year I met Roland Neednoggle in Dallas, Texas. Diana came to be full-time Young Life Staff, and I was a student at Dallas finishing my fourth year and had a club, and Roland... I uh, was a first-year student, and he and his first wife helped us start another club. So we met each other at that same time. My wife is a person who asks lots of questions. My kids are my kids. My sons are 40 and almost 38. And around our dinner table, she would ask a question. They could expect when they came home from school, they were going to get a question. Or when we sat around the dinner table. We weren't a family that was big on on, uh, devotions, uh, necessarily reading through the Bible and so forth. But we did a lot of conversation. Some of those conversations had to do with biblical themes, had to do with Jesus. And sometimes the kids were asked to lead the question. Out of that, my wife became dubbed by me the Queen of Questions. I remember when uh, my older son uh, was a student at Westmont, one of his roommates was coming home and he had prepped him about my wife. And sure enough, we sat down to dinner and my wife started in on questions to Sean. And Sean said, Jason, I see what you mean, as she asked him these questions. So she still asks lots of questions, uh, the two of us at dinner time, and there's always some sort of question. Questions are a part of life, and maybe you've been asking questions like, uh, who will be our next pastor? And now that you know who he is, well, what will he be like? And will he make changes? Well, where is he going to live? And all of these kinds of questions. And I know your pastor, uh, interim pastor, John Irwin, has a series trying to say, what are the expectations? Uh, What will he expect from us? What can we expect from him? And I'm not sure what the third one is. But he asked me to take this first one, and I'm just bringing you a message that's on my heart. If you want to make it under the theme and tell John, well, I think he made it under the theme, fine. But this is the message that God has given to me for you as a church. And that's the question, why does this church exist? I pastored actually two churches in Santa Barbara, one for four years and one for 12 years, and then I've worked with pastors for the last 15 years and will continue to do that even though I'm turning 70 in a couple of months it's it's the passion of my life and I think every church needs to ask themselves why do we exist I don't care whether they're a Presbyterian church it has to be more well we're the Presbyterian church in town why do we exist that's a provocative question provokes thinking. It can be a disturbing question. It may rattle our emotions. But I think it's a good question because it encourages our spiritual growth. One of our worship leaders this morning prayed in the uh, prayer service about our lives being transformed. And when we ask the question why does this church exist? It gives us the possibility of increased transformation to become what God wants us to become. Now, simply put, I know that you have a vision and a mission statement on the back, but I want to say, simply put, this church, or all churches exist, you could fill in the blanks with many things, but I want to say, simply, this church exists to exalt Jesus Christ and to extend His kingdom. We'll come back to that latter part. But did you notice, a little prelude to what I'm going to say later on, how often Chad mentioned the kingdom and the songs mentioned the kingdom and the prayers mentioned the kingdom. And I noticed in the pre-prayer service when he closed our prayer time, the word kingdom, hang on to that, to exalt Christ and to extend his kingdom. I don't know where I picked this quote up from a number of years ago. It's from a book called Stuart, Stuart and Georgian Churches. It's an inscription above a doorway of a church in Stoughton, Herald, Leicestershire, in England. And this is the inscription over that church or at that time. In the year 1653, when all things sacred were throughout the nation either demolished or profaned, Sir Robert Shirley Baronet founded this church whose singular praise it is to have done the best things in the worst of times and hope them in the most calamitous. Don't you love that? In a time when all things sacred were either demolished or profane, sounds like the nation I live in. This church exists to do the best things in the worst of times. And so my aim this morning is to challenge us, us, But to encourage you, to cheer you on, that this church will do the best things in the worst of times. I want us to turn to a scripture that has some implications for this main idea of exalting Christ and extending his kingdom. I think it will be on the screen, Matthew 16. If you have a Bible of your own, you can turn to it. I'm reading from the NIV version. Matthew 16. My Bible says Peter's confession of Christ as it starts that heading. I think it's more than that. I think it's Christ's declaration, and we'll see of what. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Now Caesarea Philippi is 20 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. It was a place that had all kinds of gods for worship. At one time, it was Baal worship. At another time, it was the worship of Pan, one of the Greek gods. And more recently, it's now worshiping Caesar. Philip is the Tetrarch. He's one of the sons of Herod Agrippa, Herod the Great. And he's the Tetrarch of this area. He changes the name of that city to Caesarea, honoring Caesar, Philippi, honoring himself. So Jesus takes his disciples, they're in the northward part up there in Galilee, and with all of these gods there and, you know, idols to them and so forth, he turns to his disciples and says to them, he asks the question, who do people say that the Son of Man is? That's the question for all of us. And by the way, if you came in here this morning, not part of this church, not part of any church, not really part of following Jesus, that's a great question to consider. As I need to consider after having followed Jesus most of all my life. little sidelight. I've been thinking about sometime asking people, people maybe who have no faith in Jesus, what truth do you live by? What what are the truths that I live by? Well, one of the truths I live by is who Jesus is. And so he asked them that. Who do people say that I am? Life's big question. And Peter answers, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. God. He points to his messianic identity. You are the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, the one that has been promised, the Son of the living God, pointing to his deity, his messianic identity and his deity. And Jesus says to him, Simon Peter. Well, he replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others say Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. The, 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 the stellar lineup. But what about you? And that you is plural. He has. who do you say I am? But Simon Peter speaks for them, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. You didn't figure this out on your own. This wasn't a matter of you reasoning it. This was revelation from heaven that you came up with this answer and you're the spokesperson. And then Jesus says, and I tell you that you are Peter. Which means rock. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades or Sheol or Hell will not overcome it. Now, there's a lot of interpretations about what it means for it to be built on, uh, the, I will build my church on this rock. You are Peter and on this rock. Who is this rock? Well, there's several interpretations. Probably it means it's built on Peter and the other apostles' leadership. On this rock, or your confession of who I am. We know Catholic uh, folks, uh, our brothers and sisters who know Jesus Christ, in that tradition, uh, say that Peter was the first pope, all the way down to a new pope who's going to be chosen here shortly. Um, our Protestant interpretation holds that Peter was the leader but doesn't assign popedom to it. But it does seem that Jesus is saying on this leadership and on this confession of who I am I will build my church. And the gates of death is not going to overcome the church. Whatever death exists in our nation Jesus does not mean for it to overcome the church. And Jesus is also I think hinting toward his resurrection that it will not be overcome. Death will not overcome him. Another little sidelight. I've been thinking about this just the past couple of weeks. You'll find in the next passage that we're not going to talk about that Jesus predicts his death and talks about how he'll be beaten and killed, but I'll rise again the third day. I, I-, I wondered if that's what sustained Jesus during those awful moments during the difficult three years and the awful, agonizing moments in Gethsemane, and then on the cross, in the spiritual abandonment by the Father, why have you forsaken me? I wonder if he remembered, because he said, and in three days again, I will rise. That's our hope. That's our hope. Just a a sidelight note. The gates of death will not defeat Christ or his church. Now... What are the implications out of this passage why this church exists? Well, the first implication is keep your concentration as a church. Keep ABF concentration on the person of Christ. You say, duh, no brainer. But just as in my personal life, so in our community life as a church, there are All kinds of distractions to keep our focus off Jesus Christ. So I say to you, the first implication in exalting Christ is keep your concentration on Christ. Keep the focus on Christ. There's always the distraction of property. The upkeep of the property. It's a necessity. In my experience, in the two churches, though, we could start to focus on the property and the upkeep of the property and get tangled up in that as a distraction. There's always programs. Your bulletin is full of church programs. They're good. They're part of it. But sometimes programs become the end and we become distracted. Did you notice how many of the songs Chad picked, that focused on Jesus. You're the beautiful one, the one I adore, the one I love. Easy to sing those songs personally, congregationally, but then as we get into church life, business life, and so forth, it can start to disintegrate, to minimize, and we lose the focus on why we exist to exalt Jesus Christ. Uh, Even even worship teams have to battle that. I had a friend, still is my friend, he pastors. Years ago when he was pastoring a particular church, he's at a different one now, he sent his worship team to one of those churches, I think a church of Christ, where they don't have musical instruments. He wanted them to know we can worship without all the technology and all the instruments being... As Chad said, we've been here for two hours. They were here practicing, and they try and get all the instruments and the voice and work with the tech team and get it all together. But sometimes in our worship, we can... How did it sound? Is it right? And we lose the focus, which I so appreciated, kept pointing us back in the words to Jesus this morning. It's easy to be distracted... With politics. And to come and to read whatever took place or the State of the Union message or this or that. Now I'm going to get on a soapbox. Let's pretend this is my soapbox. I have a soapbox. This is where I'm going to meddle. It chagrins me. I think that's the word I'll use. It chagrins me when as a follower of Christ or I'm with followers of Christ and we start bashing and bad-mouthing our political leaders. I don't see that in Scripture. I see pray for them. Interesting, Time uh, Magazine, I get it. The Republican Savior, how Mark Rubio became the new voice of the GOP, and he was the one that was picked to give the response to, uh, to uh, President Barack Obama. The next day in our paper, two days later, Rubio rising within GOP, but don't call him party savior. Call it the it factor. Time magazine just published, splashed Mr. Rubio on its cover, anointing him the Republican savior. Mr. Rubio, a Catholic, and he's an evangelical Catholic. I read uh, an interview with him in Christianity Today a number of months ago. Responded on Twitter, there's only one Savior and it's not me, it's Jesus. He shrugged off the label during an interview with the Associated Press. I didn't write the cover. I wouldn't have said it if I wrote it. There are no saviors in politics. (laughs) Dear people, don't add to the whining and the complaining and the griping. We Christians can do it as well as anybody. I don't see that's our call. There's two kingdoms at work. I'll I'll mention this again a little bit later. We have dual citizenship. We have dual citizenship. Don't pin your hopes. There are no saviors in Washington, D.C., in Sacramento. I read Romans 13 this past week as part of my Bible reading, and it says that, God has raised them up to be ministers. So people who are in leadership are raised up to be ministers. And even the dictators are raised up by God. So don't pin your hopes on what's going to happen. Pray and vote. But we're here to be the light of Christ. We're not here to add to the darkness. I'm off the soapbox. The soapbox went from there to there. So let me get off the soapbox. A.W. Tozier. how many have ever read any A.W. Tozier? Uh, probably he's 100 years old if he were alive today down here, but he's alive in heaven. He wrote for a number of years editorials uh, in their magazine that have now been published into books, and he pastored for a number of years. He was probably a fairly stern person, by the way, the way I, you know, he probably wasn't a touchy-feely, put his arm around your brother, you know. A young pastor came up to him once and, and apologized, uh, Mr. Tozier, Dr. Tozier, I'm just a pastor of a small and significant church. And I can imagine Tozier, because I've read a lot of him, probably pointed a finger at him and said, "Young man," and the quote goes something like this, "Young man, if you have the name and presence of Jesus, you're a significant church." If you have the name and presence of Jesus, ABF is a significant church. Do you say amen at this church? Amen. You don't have to. I'm just asking a question. <laughs> <clears throat> Larry DeWitt. Student at Fuller Seminary was graduating. He had worked part-time at a church in Pasadena. Larry, who came a number of years ago and planted Calvary community with six couples and it grew under the Lord's favor to a a large church. But when Larry was graduating, he asked Pastor Warren Thompson in Pasadena, he said, I'm just a young seminarian graduating, what advice will you give me? And Pastor Warren said, Larry, make much of Jesus. Make much of Jesus. He did that. He did that. That's why we exist, to make much of Jesus, to exalt Jesus. I encourage you to read the Gospels. There was a time when we got swept into reading the, the epistles and doctrine and theology. But I encourage you to read the Gospels. Keep reading. Who is Jesus? Maybe pick up Philip Yancey's books, The Jesus I Never Knew. It's a lifelong learning And so if you've been away from the Gospels for a while, start with one of the Gospels. Stay within the Gospels. Read Luke. That's my younger son. His name Luke, my favorite Gospel. And uh, so much about Jesus' life in there. Well, a second implication that comes out of this passage, out of Matthew 16, in terms of exalting Christ, hold fast to the conviction that this church belongs to Christ. Hold fast to the conviction. Have it as a conviction that this church belongs to Jesus Christ. You may say, well, that doesn't sound like much to me. But did you notice where Jesus said, I will build my church? He didn't say, I will build your church. He didn't say, you will build my church. He said, I will build my church. I'm builder, I'm owner. The church belongs to Jesus Christ. We're subcontractors. When I pastored, we could get fuzzy on this sometimes. When we got fuzzy on who owned the church, by that I meant, well, is this a pastor-led church? Is this an elder-led church? Is this a congregation-led church? When we got into that miry muck, good things don't happen. Those are questions of polity. Polity is important. But they became discussions of power. And when you start to discuss who has the power, who has the authority, and we forget that I will build my church. We start to head for trouble. And all churches end up that way at some point because there's an enemy who's trying to thwart the work of Christ in building his church. <clears throat> Read with me, will you? I put some scriptures in your bulletin out of the Revelation First one out of five talks about ruler of the kings of the earth. There's another one in 17 that talks about they're going to make war against the lamb, but he's going to overcome them because he's king of kings, lord of lords. But the best known part of that, I want to just remind us, this is why Jesus is owner of the church. This is why Jesus builds his church is because of who he is. Let's read this passage together. Our revelation passage. Read with me. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows, but he himself. He's dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses, and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's why he owns the church. That's who he is. My wife was involved in Bible study fellowship for a number of years uh, in Thousand Oaks before we moved back to Santa Barbara to be more hands-on grandparents, uh, some of the time anyway. And in, in there was in her, uh, she had the twos and threes at one point, and there was a three-year-old kid named Aiden. And they always ask questions that are so obvious, like, you know, the old $64 question, who's buried in Grant's tomb? <laughs> the answer is supposed to be Grant. But uh they they were talking about king and they asked the question of this little group of 2 and 3 year olds who's the king? Well, the answer is supposed to be Jesus, but Aiden's a kind of delightful kid. My wife came and said Aiden popular, I am. I am. I am. And there's a tendency for all of us at some point to say I am. There's a tendency in the life of the church for us to to attribute kingship to someone else other than Jesus, so these first two kind of go together in terms of the, the, the focus on Christ, the concentration on exalting Christ, and now the conviction that the church belongs to him. Church belongs to him. He's the owner. He owns it. He owns this church. He's building this church. Don't become confused. Scott is not coming to build this church. It's not his church. It's not the five elders' church. It's not your church. It's his church. It's a conviction you have to have. When I was a graduate student in education at Stanford University, I... Worshipped at Peninsula Bible Church. The pastor at that time, who was also in glory, was Ray Steadman. And I remember Ray telling the story of a pastor that was in a nearby community that was just struggling, struggling, struggling. And one day, Walter went into his office, and not a despair, he just got on his knees, poured his heart out to Christ. And he heard the voice from heaven in his heart. He heard the king of kings and the Lord of lords say, Walter, give me back my church. Walter, give me back my church. And he confessed that he had tried to take the church on his own. I want to suggest when leadership gathers, confess Jesus Christ as king of kings and Lord of lords and owner of the church. He delegates authority, absolutely. But delegated authority, pastoral staff, elders, leaders, whomever, all of you, it is good to come. I told you this passage started with Peter's confession of Christ, but it's declaration of Jesus that he owns the church, that he will build the church. And so I think it's just so helpful that when the church gathers or when the leadership gathers... They make it a point in prayer. Jesus, Lord Jesus, this is your church. We gather in your name. We want your name and your presence to be part of this church. And so as we gather now, we come to do the work of the church because you're the owner of the church. We do it in your name. And it wouldn't be a bad idea to do that every time. By the way, when I was pastoring the second church, because Santa Barbara is not a spread-out community, we put our elders meeting for prayer first thing in the morning at 6.30. Later that afternoon, we gathered to do the, the business. We found out that we'd have an opening prayer to do all this business, a closing prayer, and that was it. thought, well, that, that didn't seem the right thing. And so we would gather to have more time for prayer in the morning and so when you gather, however it works out, make sure you hear what Walter heard. Give me back my church and give it to him. Because our tendency is to take it away. Thirdly, third implication, and this one has to do with extending the commit, uh, the kingdom. The first one was keep your concentration, keep your focus on the person of Christ. And the second was hold to the conviction The church belongs to the king of kings and lord of lords. Lastly, the third one is make a commitment that this church exists for the kingdom of God and not itself. Jesus said, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, whatever you bind. There's that delegated authority from the king. I want to commend a book. It's one of the best books I've read. It came out in 2009. It has an interesting title. Todd Hunter, who for a number of years was on staff with the Anaheim Vineyard and headed up all the vineyard churches. He's now gone Anglican Renewal. But he's written a marvelous book called Christianity Beyond Belief, Following Jesus for the Sake of Others. He talks about the time that uh, he had lunch with Dallas Willard a few years back, so this would have been around the year 2000 now, And uh, he had known him uh, some, but he wanted to, quote, pick his brain. So they were having uh, Mexican food in a restaurant kind of near the office at USC where uh, Dallas teaches philosophy. And he said, I I wanted him to help me with things that had to do with postmodernism and, and, uh, you know, the nature of truth and so forth. I don't know, maybe things like the Truth Project I see that you're showing. Um, his mentor had recently died, John Wimmer died, and because Dallas had admired John's relentless but childlike pursuit of life in the kingdom, we got into the topic of the kingdom of God. I can't remember precisely what Dallas said about the centrality of Jesus' announcement of the kingdom, but I do recall saying in response, that changes everything. And then Todd goes on to unpack this particular verse. Can we put that verse up on the screen. After John was put into prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news. That's our word for gospel. The time has come, he said, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. I want you to notice good news and kingdom, how they're juxtaposed there. There's sort of a shift taking place. We grew up, meaning my generation, with the gospel of personal salvation. For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him, and I grew up in Sunday school, which I did. Len, put your name in the whosoever, will not perish but have eternal life. That got popularized a long way by certain tracts. I remember doing a little Camp's Crusade work with the Four Spiritual Laws and other tracts that are like that. And so the emphasis came on personal salvation. But the gospel of personal salvation is a part of the gospel of the kingdom. And that's having much more prominence in the last decade. The kingdom of God is simply the rule of God in nations, communities, persons. The rule and the reign of God. And so I want to encourage you. Make a commitment that this church does not exist for itself. It exists for the kingdom of God of which you are a part. A local church is the community of the kingdom. We're dual citizenship. Remember I mentioned that. I'm a citizen of the United States. I'm a citizen of the kingdom of God. And so the local church is the citizenry of the kingdom of God. It's the community of the kingdom. Now, yes, we are a family. Again, I read your bulletin, it's part of your vision statement. We are a family that exists, blah, so forth. But if you only exist for this family, you have missed the gospel of the kingdom, which is the rule of God in nations, persons, communities. I encourage you, I don't know, I don't know what your Ministries are outside of this church one to another. But I want to encourage you, extend your family life so that others are brought into the family. So that they know what the rule of God is to look like. You see, when Jesus taught the parables, he was teaching about the kingdom. The kingdom of God is like this, and then he'll teach on giving. The kingdom of God is like this, and he'll teach on prayer. The kingdom of God is like this, and he'll teach on serving. The kingdom of God is like this, on forgiving. When you come through the book of Acts, you see some uh, inferences on the kingdom of God, and it ends up with the last verses, and Paul taught for two years preaching and teaching on the kingdom of God. ABF, make a commitment that you exist for the kingdom of God. It's where the action is. It's where the action... I want to say this, and I want to say it as a way of pointing you into your best possible future. From my experience in working with pastors and churches these past 15 years, as well as pastoring for 17 years, as well as being on a program staff at a large conference ground where we had churches and pastors all the time, I now see that the church that seems to enjoy the impact and the influence, are churches that are geared toward the kingdom, not just maintaining themselves. There's kind of a new paradigm, and I'm thinking about this. When I grew up, you needed to believe, and then you became a church member, and you were then supposed to behave like a follower of Christ that's not bad it's not bad the paradigm today with the generations that are now moving into the leadership goes a little bit more like this come belong come belong to us we're not, we're not going to say you've got to believe and be baptized before you can become come belong come, come be part of the community and as you belong, find yourself falling in love with who Christ is and become a follower of his. And then let behavior catch up with that. Hey, by the way, why do we expect people who aren't followers of Jesus to act like followers of Jesus? Duh! That's a Greek word. No, seriously, again, my soapbox, we've got to be very careful when it comes to the cultural wars on the gay agenda, on immigration, on gun control, all these things. They're important. But I think so often we, we get caught up in saying, why aren't you behaving like you're a citizen of the kingdom of God? I'm not a citizen of the kingdom of God. I'm a pagan. And until the love of Christ grips their heart and transforms them, why would I expect that they should act like they belong to Christ? This church exists to do the best things in the worst of times which is to exalt Christ who is the king of kings and the lord of lords who owns the church and will build it and to extend his kingdom simple conclusion bank on the person of Christ don't bank on any other leader Don't put your money on your pastor who's coming. Pray for him. Support him. Support him to lead you in knowing Christ and extending this kingdom. And stand on the promise of Christ. Don't stand and step all over the pastor. Stand on the promise of Christ I will build my church. I will build my church. Bank on him. Stand on His promise. Pray for your pastor to lead you into that continuing future. I'll leave you with one more verse. It's a verse we often apply to individuals. Being confident, Paul wrote to the church at Philippi, being confident of this very thing that He who begun a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. Who did he write that to? church. I don't know your beginning. I'm going to assume it was a good beginning. The church at Philippi had begun with uh, a businesswoman, Lydia, and that jailer who thought he was going to lose his life because there was this earthquake and all the prisoners were going to leave. And Paul said, don't kill yourself. We're all here. You he washed his wounds. How can I be saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And a little demon girl and a few others. That's how that church at Philippi began. Small beginning had the name and presence of Christ, significant church, had a few troubles, had a couple of women arguing, all of that sort of stuff in there. I'm not picking on women, it just happens that's in that particular book. But Paul says being confident of this very thing, confident that Jesus Christ, who began a good work in this church, wants to bring it to completion. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this church. Thank you for their testimony. Thank you for their love for you. Thank you that they have created a family atmosphere. Thank you for these kids that were sitting in the front row worshiping. Thank you for the ministries, for Iwana, for those who are going overseas, for the worship team, for the elders children's ministry, student ministries, all the ministries of this church. May they do the best of things in the worst of times to exalt you, to lift you up, and to extend your rule and your reign outside of these church walls, into the community, into the nations should you lead them. We pray for incoming Pastor Scott, that he will keep us focused on Christ and not be distracted with lesser things yes duties will call that he has to pay attention but not to be distracted and I pray that he and all the pastors in this canal Valley will continually give back your church to you because people and they themselves are always trying to take it over themselves and it belongs to you. We honor you as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. You are the beautiful one. The glory is yours. And as we sing this next wonderful hymn, you are our vision. You are the one to whom all the glory belongs. And we give it to you. For it's in your name, Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.